Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel chapter 11, we'll read the entire chapter as we continue our study. I remind you that Ezekiel is a priest called to uh, be a prophet in the land of Babylon as an exile. Uh, Ezekiel's been in Babylon for over five years now at this juncture in redemptive history. And as you may recall, chapters 8 through 11 concern the same vision that Ezekiel sees in 592 B.C. And so we come in this passage to the tail end of that vision, uh, this single visionary experience for Ezekiel in which he is transported by the Spirit of God to Jerusalem and sees the abominations inside the temple where God is to be worshipped and sees judgment falling upon God's house and the glory of God departing. And as prophesied in this passage, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed under judgment in just a matter of few years in 586 B.C. And yet, in the midst of that judgment, as we have seen over and over again, there is yet another message of hope. This is another gospel chapter. In wrath, the Lord remembers mercy. In the midst of judgment, there is salvation, which is really the whole message of the whole of the Bible. So with that reminder, let's uh, give attention to the reading of God's word. Before we sit under the ministry of the word, let's look to the Lord once again in prayer and seek his help and blessing. Uh, Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that uh, you are the God whose ways are unsearchable. As you have said in the scriptures, your ways are higher than our ways And your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Who has discerned the mind of the Lord? Who can uh, truly know that you may be instructed? And yet we praise you that you did not leave us in a dark and dry place without light. uh, Because you have sent uh, your word from heaven. As the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth, so your word uh, comes forth from your mouth and down onto the earth, and you reveal something of your ways and your thoughts in the scriptures, particularly in the gospel of salvation in the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would stand in awe of your uh, magnificent glory in salvation. We pray that we would praise you all the more for your grace. We pray that you would grant us your spirit to be enlightened in our minds in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Open our ears to hear your voice. And open our eyes this day to see wonderful things in your law. And pray that you would bind our will in response to love, to trust, to obey, and to glorify Christ. So fill our souls with all good things. As the word of God is opened, you would open our hearts, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 11, this is God's holy word. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were twenty-five men. And I saw among them Jaazaniah, the son of Azor, and Palatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. And the Spirit said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, The time is not near to build houses. This city is a cauldron, 
and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, Thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Your slain, whom you have laid in the midst of the city, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. And I will bring you out of the midst, out of, the midst of it, and give you into the hands of foreigners, and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah the son of Benaiah died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, O oh Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Therefore, say, Thus says the Lord God, Though I remove them far off among the nations, and though I scatter them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore, say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea, to the exiles. Then the vision that I had seen went up from me. And I told the exiles all the things that the Lord has shown me. Now, thus far, this reading in God's holy word. Well, Ezekiel truly sees the likeness of the glory of the Lord as the heavens opened. He saw the glory of the Lord enthroned above the cherubim with the wings 
and the four wheels beside these living creatures moving in concert, sort of as divine chariots. And as we noted, the sights and the sounds were simply awesome and overwhelming as would be to any mortal. Such splendor and majesty, such brightness from heaven above, from high above the expanse, is contrasted in Ezekiel's visionary experience with what is going on on the ground, within the temple ground, that God is pleased to dwell. And Ezekiel sees within his own eyes the wickedness, the iniquities, the abominations, the idolatries that God's people are engaged in, in the very appointed place of God's dwelling, the house of the Lord. And those sins, wickedness, iniquities are driving away the presence of God from his own house, and they are bringing down the judgment of God upon his people. The glory of God is departing from the temple and departing from the city of Jerusalem. In place, foreigners will come and overrun the city. All the inhabitants will be slain. The sword, famine, pestilence, these things prophesied before. Anyone without the mark of God placed by the man we saw in chapter 9, judgment will not pass over them. All will be judged as the wrath of God breaks out. And as that message and the vision of judgment continues, you see that Ezekiel is brought to another location by the Spirit. Verse 1 tells us that Ezekiel is brought to the east gate of the temple to see particularly these 25 men who are apparently leaders of the people, men with wicked and evil hearts. And two of them are even mentioned by name. We read in verse two, verse 1, Jeazaniah and Pelatiah. And as Ezekiel sees the abominations taking place in the temple, God tells Ezekiel to go prophesy against them. And in the act of prophesying, as Ezekiel was speaking the word of God, Pelatiah dropped dead in the middle of preaching. As a preview warning of what would be happening to the whole city that lies under God's judgment. At times, we see things like that happening. God is pleased to break out in his holy wrath and bring immediate temporal judgment through death and destruction in order to vindicate his own righteousness and magnify his own name so that all may stand in fear. You may remember the same thing happened to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 1 for offering unauthorized worship on the altar or to Achan in Joshua chapter 7 at the valley of Achor. Achan, for his covetousness, taking spoils that were forbidden against God's word, and Achan had to be put to death, or to Ananias or Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, for lying to the Holy Spirit, and they were struck dead, or even the secular pagan king Herod in Acts chapter 12, for not giving glory to God, and he struck dead immediately and eaten by the worms. We are even told in 1 Corinthians 11, concerning the Lord's Supper, that some have fallen ill and weak for eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. In the breakout of judgment, Ezekiel's only response is to fall flat on his face and cry out in verse 13, O Lord God, will you make a complete end of your people? Will there be salvation for your people? 
I quickly note with me some things about these people in Jerusalem. People who will come under judgment share these exact same traits. I want to mention three of them as we continue on in our study. First of all, notice how these people were scoffers. They scoffed at God's word. They trifled with God's word. They twisted God's word to suit their own fancy, to suit their own desires. Did you notice this very strange proverbial expression that they themselves devised, where they said in uh, verse, um, uh, in the middle of our passage, um, in verse 7, they said, uh, uh, this city is a cauldron, and we are the meat. And this is the cauldron, and we are the meat. And the commentators are perplexed as to what on earth they meant by this strange imagery. Uh, some think that uh, they are expressing despair. Uh, we are cooked like meat in a meat pot. But if you remember Ezekiel's contemporary, the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah who was preaching in the exact same city at the exact same time, do you remember how his inaugural vision given by God to proclaim to the people in Jeremiah chapter 1 was that of a boiling pot or cauldron coming from the north as a picture of an impending Babylonian invasion. And the people of Jerusalem apparently turned that word of God around and said unto themselves, No, no, Babylon is not the cauldron, but this city is the cauldron, and we are like the meat that belongs in this pot. This is a false sense of security. They are saying we are as secure as the meat would be in the boiling pot. We belong in the city, and we won't be removed from it. And that's the first thing the people of God did with this proverbial retort against God's word. This city is the cauldron. We are the meat as secure as we can be. Ours is the temple. God's word does not matter. The Lord says cauldron is coming, but we say this is the cauldron. So first of all, they are scoffers. And on the day of judgment, those who will be judged are those who scoff at God's word. Do you remember how the Lord says in Isaiah 66, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Scoffers are those who either turn the word on its head or make the Bible like a rubber band, if that image is helpful to you, making it elastic, making the word of God stretch as far as it can to hear only what they want to hear without true faith and repentance. They'll use the language, the vocabulary, the imagery of the Bible without taking the message of the Bible seriously. But then secondly, I want you to see how these people are also presumptuous and proud. They are boasting in their privileges and thinking themselves better than others. Look down in verse 16. They looked on their fellow brothers and they said of their brothers who are exiled, they said of them, Go far from the Lord. You've been exiled. We still live in the city. They said in 16, verse 16, To us the land is given for possession. Uh, we are good. We live in the promised land after all. Uh, these people are boasting, presuming upon God's grace. And all their boasting is in the externals and in their flesh. Relying on the outward privileges Things that people still rely upon, like church membership, 
mere verbal profession of faith or baptism or Christian family without inward reality of life with God. They're presuming upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience without repentance, faith, and obedience. And so these people are presumptuous. The land that's not given to us, it will not be taken away from us and we will not be cast out of the land. They, those fellow brothers, are the worst sinners who were exiled before us. The Bible tells us the way of grace, by contrast, excludes boasting. If you examine your own heart, grace leads to only one place. Grace leads one to pray with a publican. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. I'm the worst of all sinners. Before your sight, I bring nothing in my hand. Simply to your cross, I cling. I'm not comparing myself with others. I am the worst of sinners in your sight. Grace excludes all boasting, all comparisons. Grace only leads to casting yourself upon the Lord and boasting in him. But then thirdly, these uh, 25 men and the inhabitants of Jerusalem were simply sinners and idolaters. They broke God's commandments and they worship other gods. They were engaged in abominations and detestable things, our text says. Well, what are these abominable and detestable things practiced in Jerusalem? Undoubtedly, there are some statutes, foreign gods imported into God's temple. They are bowing down to them and serving them. And these are kind of things that happen all down through generations. And lest you think abominations and detestable things are only limited to physical statutes, the Lord Jesus tells us that things that really bring defilement, things that is truly abominable and objectionable in the sight of God, are all the evil things that flow out of the heart. Things like evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, coveting, wickedness, deceit, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That is what's heinous and odious in God's sight. It's sin, sin, the transgression of the law, want of conformity unto the law, the works of the flesh, things that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. Those are the ones that will bring condemnation upon sinners. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, those who do these things, those who live in them, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will be cast out of God's presence. Oh, such is the way of the wicked that leads to judgment. And the Bible reveals that it's not just the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Actually, deep down, it's all of us by nature. Because that's what God's word reveals to us, how we are by nature. Then the question is, who can be saved? Is there salvation in the income, uh, impending outbreak of God's judgment? Well, having seen the spiritual disaster in Jerusalem, notice how Ezekiel in the second half of the chapter is given the gospel to preach to the exiles in Babylon. Ezekiel is given the message of hope, the good news of salvation, that salvation is going to be the work of God alone. 
And it is going to be the gift of God entirely. The salvation will be entirely the work of God divinely accomplished. The work in which you play no part, to which you contribute nothing. And it will be the gift of God divinely bestowed, to which you make no contribution, no payment, no bargaining. You simply receive. And this is the same word that is declared to you in the gospel. Look down in verse 16. The Lord says, Though I remove them and scatter them among the countries in judgment, verse 16, yet I have been a sanctuary to them wherever they have gone. The Lord says to his people exiled under temporal judgment, yet I myself have been a place of refuge and a sanctuary to them, and I have gone with them. Even in faraway places, I have been a place of refuge for you, And I myself have been your dwelling place in your exile so that I will not leave you or forsake you, but rather I will ingather you, the Lord says. I will assemble you and bring you back to possess the land. I will give you the land of Israel. That's the message of hope declared to the exiles in Babylon. And the Lord says, when you come, When that day dawns upon you, the land will be cleansed of all the detestable and abominable things. This will be like the new exodus. I'm doing a new thing. I will bring you back to the promised land. And at the center of this promise is uh, this gift of a new heart. Verse 19, I will give you one heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take away the heart of stone from your flesh. I will remove a heart that used to be dead and unresponsive and hardened and stubborn like stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh, flesh that is alive and spiritual and tender and teachable so that you may walk in my rules. You may keep my commandments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is the covenant promises declared to God's exiled people. And God himself will do it. This is all given in the first person, a pronoun, divine initiative, according to his own covenant promise. I will give a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will make you my treasured possession, the apple of my eyes. God will gather them to be his people. God will gather them to be his children. And God will bring them into the fold as his flock. That's the Old Testament gospel reality, glorious gospel reality, the gift of a new heart, the ingathering into God's kingdom. This is something that God's people have experienced it all through the ages, whether in the old or the new, but it's something that God will do in greater measure in the new days. I will give, I will put, I will remove, I will gather, I will assemble, This is not the work of man. Man cannot do a thing. He's entirely passive. Jesus calls it the new birth. You must be born again, born from above, born again of the Spirit. Paul calls it a new creation. Anyone being Christ, he's a new creation. You no more contribute to your second birth than to your first birth, your physical birth. You no more play a part in your new creation than in your original creation when God knew you beforehand and knitted you together in your mother's womb. This is entirely the work of God that he himself promises to accomplish. And when God does this work, it's enormously amazing. 
it's entirely glorious. The Lord himself rejoices in his works. And the simple question is, has God done that work in you? Have you been born again? Do you have a new heart? Do you have a heart of flesh? Well, our passage gives a cliff notes version of spiritual cardiology. There are three vital signs for this new heart that the Lord mentions in our passage, the new heart, the heart of flesh. Notice, first of all, this new heart is a heart that hates sin. It so hates sin, it so wants to do away with sin, verse 7, 18. It grieves over sin because sin is something that grieves God. A person with a new heart can't stand to live with sin. And we're not talking about sinless perfection, but this growing sensitivity to the presence of sin in your own life, out of love to the Lord Jesus and passion for his glory, new heart will want to deal with sin. Then secondly, this is a heart that delights to keep God's commandments. Again, the Lord says, verse 20, so that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. When there is a new heart, then my law will be inscribed upon that heart, and there is on tablets of the human heart put upon it the law of God, expression of his righteousness. There's born within your heart a universal commitment to honor the Lord by keeping his commandments, a thorough keeping of the law in the whole man, so that your whole life will be like a living letter, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 3. And thirdly, this is a heart that is single-minded, a heart that is entirely united in love for and in fear of God with a wholehearted devotion to the Lord God of salvation. So that truly, when you have a new heart, you begin to become um, one thing man and one thing woman. You say with the psalmist, Psalm 27, 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord and will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever all the days of my life, in order to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, in order for me to enjoy his fellowship, I may dwell in his house forever. Or with Paul, you say, Philippians chapter 3, this one thing I do, forgetting, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward always to what lies ahead, I press on forward that I may know Christ, I may know him and attain him. And I simply ask, is your heart united like that this morning? Has God truly bound your heart to love him, trust him, and to serve him? Has the same spirit who so animated these living creatures, the cherubim and the four wheels in the vision, also breathed life into your heart, that your heart actually beats and your whole being moves in conjunction with the glory of God like these cherubims do? That's the message that Ezekiel sees, the message of salvation, the work that God will do, and the gift that God will bestow of regeneration and of a new heart. And so Ezekiel sees the cherubim lifting up their wings and the glory of the Lord going up and going out of the city. And we see in verse 23, the glory of the Lord went out of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. The glory of God has departed from the temple. And that's how the vision ends. Verse 24, the spirit brought Ezekiel back among the exiles in Chaldea. Then the vision went up from him. Ezekiel is back to reality. That's the vision he saw. The glory of God 
has departed. The judgment of God is coming. The work of God and the gift of, of God is promised to the exiles who have not yet seen that reality. But you know what Ezekiel could only see in a vision would really happen 600 years later, that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God made flesh, the very glory of God incarnate, came into this world of misery in order to bring salvation to sinners, to be the mediator of the new covenant promised in our passage. And in that eventful week, as Jesus would enter into the city of Jerusalem, initially greeted with the shouts of Hosanna with worldly expectations, but as the city unfolds itself before Jesus, it's full of unbelief. And Jesus walked into the temple that is full of uncleanness and abominations. And remember how Jesus wept over the city, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a mother hen would gather her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Indeed, your house is left to you desolate, and you will not see me again. Those are the parting words Jesus spoke as he departed and went out of the city, and Jesus, the very glory of God, stood on the Mount of Olives to the east of Jerusalem to speak not only the words of judgment to come upon Jerusalem, the words of the impending destruction in AD 70 when the Romans would destroy the temple, but also to speak of the words of salvation that he has come to accomplish. And to accomplish that salvation, Jesus would be arrested, tortured, crucified, dying the cursed death on the tree, facing the flaming sword of divine judgment, the very sword that Ezekiel spoke to these abominably wicked men, Jesus took upon himself that judgment promised he would be taken outside the city wall. He would be taken, as it were, to the cliff edge of the land, at the border of Israel, cut off from the land of the living, in order to bear away the transgressions, iniquities away, as far as the east is from the west. Salvation for sinners flows entirely from this man, the God-man, whose movement towards the cross under wrath and in darkness, Ezekiel 600 before that, could only see in such dazzling brightness the glory of God departing from the temple. And after that vision is gone, Notice what Ezekiel does. This is whatever happened. Whenever a vision is given, this is when, what, when, what happens inevitably. Verse 25, I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, that's what gospel preaching is. That's what happens each time you sit under God's word preached to you. Remember how Hebrews chapter 1 says, Long ago, God spoke to our fathers, and many times in many ways, in things like visions. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And these things which we have seen with our own eyes, what we have heard with our own ears and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, 
we proclaim to you that word, the Lord Jesus. Preaching is when a man who has seen the glory of God and the way of salvation in Jesus as revealed in the scriptures, the message to be declared to the exiles is standing and declaring to God's people, this is the way of salvation. This is the very glory of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior. And the Bible says we are, in a sense, all exiles. We are strangers and aliens because we are not yet home. We have not yet arrived in a better country promised to all of God's people. And yet God is gathering us. He's giving us the promised inheritance kept in heaven for us. God has put his spirit in us and gave us a new heart. And this week, personally, I was struck by how the Apostle Peter concludes his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, the letter which he addresses specifically to the elect exiles scattered throughout the world, picturing Christians as elect exiles scattered about throughout the world. And Peter says in chapter 5, verse 12, I have written this letter briefly to you. This is the purpose of my letter, exhorting and declaring to you that this is a true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And whenever you sit under the word of God minister to you, it is as though the message of the glory of God in the salvation of God, the message of the way of salvation and life in Jesus Christ is declared to you from men who have seen with their own eyes something of that divine glory. What we have in the scriptures is an eyewitness account, the vision shown, and it is being declared to you for your salvation, for your encouragement. And so that's the message of salvation, the gospel message that Ezekiel ends with. But the new covenant, the promise of salvation, always comes with warning. Let me direct your eye again back in our text in verse 21. The Lord says, If they persist with their hearts in their sins, if their heart goes after detestable, abominable things, the Hebrew literally says, if their heart goes after the heart of idols, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads. The gospel always sets before two clear ways. Come and embrace the Lord Jesus. But without faith and repentance, if you persist in sins and iniquities, the only thing that remains is for your own deeds to fall upon your heads. Why would sinners ever do that? Why would we ever do that, believers? When the Father has taken your deeds and he has laid them on the head of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, in judgment, why would you suffer your own deeds ever to fall upon your own head? Or in the gospel, there is a glorious exchange. And the gospel points you to look to the Lord Jesus Christ, your substitute, your representative, and your mediator. Look to the head of the Lord Jesus, whose head was crowned with your sin, whose head, as he nailed on the cross, was crowned with thorns. And when the Spirit so brings the preaching of Christ crucified, to your once stony heart, your dead heart, with such power and conviction, that's how anyone 
it's given a new heart and it's brought to life and brought to faith in Jesus Christ. That's how God will give a new heart to hearts of stone. By so exalting his own son in the proclamation of the gospel, by the spirit he will impart a new heart of flesh in dead sinners. In January 1968, and just to have a timeline clear in your mind, that's about 18 months before the first man, Neil Armstrong, ever stepped on the moon, there was another scientific breakthrough. Dr. Norman Shumway, the Stanford surgeon, performed the world's first successful human heart transplant so that the patient could live for a little while longer before he died. Dr. Shumway passed away 18 years ago from lung cancer. And it is said that on his wall in his house was a sign that said, where there is death, there is hope. You see what he was getting at where a dead body is, dead heart, can be put into another heart. The gospel is a lot more than that. How much more glorious spiritual heart transplant is? It's not just Jesus died that you have salvation. It's because Jesus rose again. Then you have a new heart. Again, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The reason you are given a new heart is because the Savior, the mediator of the new covenant, reigns in the newness of life, never to die, to grant his spirit to you, to grant the fullness of his grace upon sinners. Shumway's slogan is powerless. Where there is death, there is no hope. If Jesus remained dead, you would be still in your sins. But the gospel tells us where there is resurrection, there is hope. Jesus is risen. Jesus is exalted. And from his throne at the right hand of God, he sends his spirit to regenerate sinners, to give new birth, a new heart. The Lord Jesus has become our everlasting sanctuary. And if that's you, if you're born again, that means the Bible says you have been raised together with Christ and seated together with him in the heavenly places. That means that the spirit of the risen Christ dwells in your heart to rule over your heart of flesh. Because you have been given a heart of flesh, your heart can now see. Your hearts can be enlightened to behold the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus through his word. That means your heart can burn within you as the scriptures are opened as you hear the voice of your Savior speaking. It means your hearts can be filled as though you are a storehouse, filled with all the fullness of God, filled with the words of Christ. It means your hearts can also be cut. When the Spirit convicts you of your sin, your hearts can be cut. But also, to be comforted and strengthened and healed by his word of grace. It means your hearts have truly become a place 
a feasting and banqueting house where you commune with your Savior. Your heart is, as it were, overflowing with a new wine of his blessings. And the Spirit of God constantly pours the love of God into your heart. And your heart can be established in every good work and word. Your heart are like a walking and living Bible, a living holy temple with an inscription that says, Holy to the Lord. That's what happens to your heart when you're born again, and that's you, believers, in Jesus Christ. And Proverbs chapter 4 says, Therefore, guard your heart with all vigilance, because from it flows all the issues of life. And Jesus says, I will be your God and you shall be mine. And the way you will belong to me is by your heart, devotion, and obedience to me. You are my sheep gathered who will listen to me and follow me. You are my children adopted who will be matured unto family likeness, unto my likeness. You are my bride betrothed to me in covenant, cleansed, adorned, beautified to be presented. You are my people redeemed by my blood to dwell in the peace and blessings of the kingdom, to dwell in my glory. And my brothers and sisters, that's you this morning if you are in Jesus Christ. He has given you a new heart and he has declared these glorious things seen in the vision of Ezekiel fulfilled in Christ unto you through his word. But then as we close, maybe there are some here who may be thinking, That's not really me. I don't think I'm born again. I know my heart is still stony hard. It's not new. It's not alive. What must I do to be saved? And there's only one way for you. There's only one way that leads you to salvation. Let the word of God speak to you and lead you to cast yourself entirely upon God for mercy. You repent of your sins and believe in Christ offered to you in the gospel. That's the only way anyone is brought to salvation because salvation is found in no one else, in no other name than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise of God is sure and certain. He will not turn you away. He will never put you to shame. You will never be disappointed when you call upon his name in such a manner because God has promised it in his covenant, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he may be near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. Let him return to his God because he will abundantly pardon. That's the only way where anyone is given this gracious gift of a new heart because God has accomplished all the plentiful and full complete redemption in the death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is, as we come to the table, are you truly in him? Or may your heart response to Jesus Christ provide the answer that question. Let's pray together.